probably not a wise idea to dangle your feet in the water like that. I don't know if we're going to need a bigger boat, but I do know it's What the Pat, episode 14. As you guessed, I might be talking a little bit about sharks because it's just something that came up on my radar this week and I got wrapped up into. Uh, what else? I'll, I'll talk about a movie I watched. It was a bit chilly. That's just a hint. Of course, there's going to be spoilers. There may not be. I just like to say that so I don't spoil anything. Sometimes I never know if I'm going to actually spoil it or not. But I'm not sure I can spoil it. But anyway, I'm going to read you another letter from my great-grandfather, Elmer Stahl, known as Captain Stahl. So let's get going. Let's jump right in. I say jump right in, but now that I'm thinking about sharks, maybe you should just not jump. <laughs> oh, the rabbit hole I went down this week was, uh, I think because of a YouTube video, I found, um, oh, we'll start off with interesting stuff that was found. How's that? Okay, that's what we're going to do. Interesting stuff that I found. Bear with me if you will. It was through my Google News feed, which I, I'm not sure. I don't know. Somehow I mentioned shark somewhere probably, and it, it popped up or something. But anyway, this is pretty cool. Rosie is the name of the 12-foot great white shark that's been abandoned at a wildlife park. Now, I know what you're saying right now, if you pay any attention to stuff, that you've never seen a great white in captivity. Well, Rosie, unfortunately, is dead. But she is fully intact and preserved in this giant tank of formaldehyde. The first picture on the link that I'm going to have in the show notes is creepy and just, it, it made the hair on my neck stand up. But it's kind of cool. The Long story short, she was caught in, I believe, 1998 in some fishing nets and had died. So they took and handed her off to, uh, let's see if I can, it's, it's always hard to scan through but there was a, a guy who had taken her and built a tank and preserved her in formaldehyde and then put into a, a park now she's been through i think two parks or maybe stayed in the same park you'd have to read the article i'm more interested in how weird cool creepy it is that there's a 12 foot great white shark preserved now the problem is she's in an abandoned uh, wildlife park in Australia, and the park's been closed, and she sits there in this tank. Um, some vandals have since taken the lid off, thrown some shit in there, and just really, I don't, I don't get people. This shark is preserved in a tank, and you want to rip the lid off and throw shit in it and just fuck it up. I don't, I don't get it. It, it, it just bothers me because one, it's a cool find. Two, taking that lid off, you bring a bunch of harm to anybody else who goes in. Not that you should trespass and go in there and look, but put everybody else in harm's way and then put Rosie in harm's way, which some people would probably say, just let her rest in peace, get rid of her barrier, blah, blah, blah. But it's still kind of cool to see a great white shark preserved because it's cool to see them up close. Granted, they're scary. Jaws didn't help that any. The shark swallow you whole. But with all the research nowadays and everything and the studies on sharks, sharks are pretty amazing and they're a pretty elegant creature 
within themselves. So they're not the man eater, you know, that Hollywood made them out to be, which Jaws, don't, don't worry, that that screwed me up. <laughs> I don't ever want to go diving. That that movie scarred me a bit, and it scarred a few others. But this is just really cool. Like, I couldn't imagine going into an abandoned place and coming across this with, you know, with the lid on so you don't die. Um, but it's eerie and cool and very interesting. I was also seeing, too, that she she has all her innards and everything intact. So I believe Australia is trying to get a group together to try and rescue her, save her, and uh, get her probably to a different park or something because I, I think it would be a shame after all she's been through. Granted, it's just a dead shark now, but, the, you know, sometimes I feel like there's a soul in there and, you know, there's something to see and it's it's kind of neat, which nobody killed her intentionally for this. So, you know, she just happened to get stuck in a net, which really, truly sucks for her. But nonetheless, still very cool. Uh, and I would love to go explore abandoned places, you know, legally and check it out. Like Chernobyl's on my list. I think that would be just an interesting place to go check out and everything because the place got overgrown so quick with nobody there. It's, it's incredible how nature works so quickly to just take back what was once nature's, you know, building stuff without human inhabitants and stuff like that. So. But if you want to know more about Rosie, I got a link in the notes. There's quite a few people who've gone to the park and um, done a video from outside because nobody wants to go in and nobody wants to disturb her. Um, also, too, they thought about moving the tank, but it's so fallen apart and stuff that they can't successfully move the tank and get her out of there. So it seems like it's a big situation because I, I think that much formaldehyde uh, would be hard to move and cost a lot of money to uh, get it out of there. So hopefully there's a happy story in the end for her because it's it's a really neat story um, that, you know, you can read about. If you like sharks, or, I think sharks are pretty cool. Uh, and, uh, and bringing up Jaws again, I uh, watched a documentary on um, the making of Jaws and how much trouble it was and and how successful the film ended up being because of uh, Bruce, the mechanical shark, kept breaking down, which I'm sure people know that whole story. But it's interesting, and I like seeing that um, type of stuff about films and, and all that, like how how popular and how big Jaws became uh, for such a movie. Like, groundbreaking, you know? And it could have it broken Spielberg, as he was saying that, it could have ended his career, but instead catapulted him. So, you know, that's, you know, everybody's like, oh, what a cool story. It's just luck of the draw, I think, sometimes, too. He he didn't really want to do the movie and uh, then ends up making something incredible, which also, too, is cool. He didn't really want to do it, but he gave it his all, and he figured it out, and he made it work and put out one of the best, uh, I would say, shark movies out there. Deep Blue Sea, that you haven't seen that <laughs> that's crazy but um samuel jackson's speech but anyway uh sharks i think they're cool i don't think i could ever get in the water uh scuba diving i would probably be up for getting in a shark cage and checking sharks out that way i think that would be cool give me an underwater camera and, and put me in there i think i think i could do it 
I think it would be even cool to swim with a whale shark. On to another topic. Uh, my buddies over at Discord Accord, Stephen and Jonathan, or Jonathan and Stephen, however you'd like to say it, which checked out their podcast. It's pretty interesting. Uh, it jumps all around on different topics and stuff. Uh, the last episode I listened to, they were talking about their first jobs and stuff, and it made me kind of reflect and go, I've held some pretty interesting jobs. Some of my favorite jobs, being the one I have right now, is high on my list. But one of my first jobs that I thought was the most amazing job ever, and it was like a dream come true, was when I got to be a DJ for a radio station in Augusta, Georgia. And I started out as the country DJ, um, which I wasn't a country music fan, but you know what? You You take the opportunity when it knocks and I took it and then I got to do stuff on the on the rock show on the rock side of the station 96 WRXR and it was non-stop fun I had such a good time all the people I met at the station um, the bands I got to meet the people I got to meet to be the ability to talk on air play music that I enjoyed which I started liking some country music but I'm still a rock head at heart and you learn things like you know it's Chattahoochee not Chattahoochee um, it was just a ton of fun granted radio's not what it used to be uh, I did some DJing here um when I got here and it it was fun but radio has certainly changed and everything but that time in Augusta Georgia was really a highlight to my life and one of the best jobs I had had it didn't pay much I started out as an intern so I was pretty much running around doing whatever and I was able to be an intern at the time um, so again taking the opportunity it was unpaid but I got to get into shows for free, I got free music, I got t-shirts, often there was free food, I mean, it was it was great, they'd oftentimes tell me, Pat, we got nothing for you, you can go home, and I'd be like, I can organize those CDs and put them in alphabetical order, and put them by alphabetical order by artist, <laughs> I, it, it was just so much fun, and this is one of the first jobs uh, that I really enjoyed when I got out of the Navy. Um, one of my first jobs in life was working at my uncle's lawnmower shop in Bellingham, Washington. And I worked Saturdays. I got 10 bucks. That was enough for me to go see a movie and, and grab some McDonald's Saturday night and then go to school all week and come back and do it again. And I learned a lot there. And it, it was cool working my Saturday. No big deal. Uh, and then I also was a prep cook at a restaurant, which was, it was all right, but I had to quit during wrestling season because the cook was so good and he would cook every night for us afterwards. I was, I couldn't maintain weight and it was hard enough because I weighed 115. I had to wrestle at 115 and I, <laughs> it, I had no fat on me to lose any weight anyway to begin with. So that worked out, but it was kind of cool. I also had a paper route, which I did for two years and that was, that was some work. It was cool getting money, but I gave that up. And then I worked at a shake mill, putting ridge cap, which is the cedar cedar ridge pieces. You know, it's best I can explain it. Stapling them together. And then I went in the Navy for four years as a radioman, which uh, I took because it was 
given to me in these words. Air-conditioned office. Okay, sign me up. I didn't need to know anything else to do. So, And I had to go to school for that once I was in the Navy, learn how to operate the the equipment and everything, which Radiumin is no longer in the Navy. They've merged it with other rates and stuff because Radiumin went away, and that's just how it goes. But I was I got a top-secret clearance and got to sit in the Radio Shack and communicate. So what was cool is we got to know where the ship was going before anybody else. You get sports scores and all that. So, And when I look back on my four years in the Navy, I really had a great time. As much as I hated being in because I was young and wanted to do other stuff and didn't like being told, you know, to cut your hair, shave, you know, do this, do that. Uh, 18 years old and, and going out. Great time at sea. I really enjoyed it. Um, probably have a little bit of that salt in my in my body because of my uh, grandfather and my great-grandfather and also my biological dad. He was a But I met a lot of great people. Got to see so many cool places and learn so much and just learn even more how much I do love America from some of the places I've seen and how lucky I have it here. And then, you know, getting out, uh, you know, I I worked at a bank for a little bit in the credit department, approving, disapproving people for credit cards. And then DJ. And then I did some retail for a while, worked at Sunglass Hut. Man, oh, reflecting back... <laughs> One of the, we'll talk jobs I hated. I did pick strawberries for all of a day. Take this job and shove. Hated it. Oh man, you, I would rather be sleeping my summer away instead of sitting in the field and dirt in the sun picking strawberries. I was slow at it. I couldn't. You know, I, my friends all sat in another part of the field. For some reason, they put me on one side of the field. I don't know why. Maybe because I tend to talk a lot. Shh, don't tell anybody. But picking strawberries, worst job ever for me. Some excelled at it. I sucked at it. I did raspberries probably for like two weeks. Yeah, didn't last long. Um, And then, like I said, I did the retail thing. And then I was a a commercial painter and a house painter. And then I thought I'd take a break from that. And I I worked at a place called Zones. And that that is high on my list as one of the worst jobs I ever had. It wasn't for me. I had to sit on the phone, cold call people, try and sell them computers, tell them why, you know, we were the best and and pricing and all that. And I'm not a pushy guy. If you say no, okay, cool. Bye. No, you had to keep pushing. Um, I gained so much weight because they give you so much food. I did get some pretty cool tech toys, but really it, it ate away at my soul. And I, it's the first job I've ever been fired from. And uh, that kind of was a blow because I'd never been fired, but I kind of had it coming because I didn't do my job because I hated it. Then I got back into construction after that and did my own handyman thing uh, and grew from there. And now I'm where I'm at now. I do photography. I run half of our dog training business. I do some dog training. I do, you know, it. it's great. I, I've been pretty fortunate in life to land where I've landed, and it's great. So that's pretty much it. And now I'm doing podcasts because I, cause I can't. Man, I rambled on. I could keep rambling, but I want to talk about some stuff I've been watching. Lately, I've been watching a lot of people living in vans on YouTube. So many cool videos to see. And 
how they've designed their van to live a nomadic lifestyle and also, you know, it allows you to go other places camping versus like KOA or something, you can boondock it. There's also some cool wineries that have setups uh, and you go to a website, I'd have to look it up for you, but I'm not going to right now, I'm going to talk about it. Wineries that let you park there and you can camp overnight or whatever and get to, if you want to believe you can also do some stuff at the winery they teach you how to do some things and help out so kind of in trade and also i believe there might be a fee for for camping there but how cool camping at a winery and everything but the nomadic lifestyle is pretty enthralling to me and, and cool because it gives you freedom and i wish i would really thought about it when i was younger because i don't like being tied down i don't like having to be attached to a house or do what society says get a job do this do that and on on because it doesn't feel free that's why i got out of the navy because it just didn't feel like i had control of my life and then i really got feel i you know led myself astray by thinking i need to get this job so i can do this and get the house and everything so i my mom did mention, why don't you get an RV and live in an RV park? And I'm like, ah, I don't know. I can't afford an RV. I can barely afford rent. But really, when you look at it, if you figure it out, I've never been good with money until I would say about eight years ago. Thank you, Allison. Um, so Allison and I have been watching a lot of these videos, getting some ideas because we do have an RV, but we have five dogs. So that can be a lot of work going on the road, going places because some places only let two dogs. Um, and then going boondocking with our size of RV is a little difficult without seeing the area and all that. But anyway, great lifestyle. We're hoping in a few years it's something we can trek across the U.S. and see things and everything. And uh, it also gives me some ideas how I can work on our RV and make it a little more uh, user-friendly inside. Because I'm finding that a lot of the space in there is just not usable. And, you know, the RV isn't meant to be lived in full time because they have problems and they aren't built to last like that so and right now in the technology age of videos and books and everything you can find online it's it's a lot easier i think to figure out how to live that lifestyle if it's something you look for and like i said i got no problems if you want to have the boats the house and all that stuff you know to each his own everybody has different things they like some people want the big house with the pool and and everything and you know to them that's cool i'm learning now stuff is just a giant anchor get what you need and then go enjoy what you want now let's drop down to the movie i saw i went and saw cold pursuit liam neeson because i dig the guy action uh if he's if he's gonna be kicking somebody's ass i'm in even if he's just being Liam Neeson and hanging out. I dig the guy. We'll skip the news shit because, well, whatever. Fuck that. Um, Cold Pursuit, it was not the movie I thought it was going to be going in. And I actually had a good time watching it, even though it wasn't quite what I thought. I think it's a dark comedy, but I'm not totally sure on this because, I don't know. It, it was a good movie and it was different. It didn't certainly go the way I thought it was going to go, but it still went in a direction, and it was an older crowd that I saw it with, too, so that was kind of funny. Some some older people giving Liam some support. Ooh, ooh. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, Cold Pursuit. I don't know who directed it. Didn't pay attention to it. What drew me in was Liam Neeson 
driving a big-ass snowplow, and then investigating his son being uh, uh, murdered. Well, oh, oops, spoiler. Um, Drug overdose. Oops, maybe did he? I don't know. But uh, overall, fun movie. And uh, it was a ride that uh, the trailer shows you one thing, and you end up going on a little different ride. So it's not too screwy in the sense of, like, um, Annihilation, where I love the movie. And didn't realize I loved the movie till probably three days later. But the trailer and the movie, I, I don't even know how you would do that movie as a trailer. Um, because I think any way around it would seem misleading as far as that goes. Speaking of on Annihilation. Anyway, back to Cold Pursuit. Yeah, go see it. Or, you know, wait for it on DVD or something. It's, it's a good little fun watch and I enjoyed it. I'm still working my way through Daredevil Season 3. And uh, then after that I'll jump into Punisher. Season 2, which I'm dying to see, but I want to watch Daredevil first and get through that. And, uh, man, I hope down the road we do get more Daredevil and that this isn't the end of it. And then, you know, probably the end of The Punisher, because who can really... Disney isn't... (laughs) That's not Disney-friendly, is it? Uh, I feel like talking about what's in my cup this week might be a rehash, but still, if you haven't tried it, Valhalla Java, Odin Force Blend, it's a Death Wish coffee. It's what fuels Zach Wild. I gave some pause there because you should know who the hell he is. The man can wield an axe. He's got some biceps like a motherfucker. Anyway, can play the that. You know what I was thinking the other day? Down a rabbit hole. I was watching Zach Wild play and looking at his new style so to speak which has been his style for a long time now i remember when i read the article when he first got the gig with ozzy and he was this pretty boy long blonde hair guy that i was like man i'd like to hear him i can't wait hearing him dude was just perfect as far as fitting with ozzy and and playing and now he's this viking dude which his evolution and the following he has and how much respect he does have then some people rag on him for how he is but it's Zach I, I feel he's created the character that he enjoys and uh, man one of my favorite guitars but anyway Mahala Java it's on Death Wish it's a Death Wish coffee so check it out of course you can go to my website I got all the coffee links there and everything plus you can get some discounts because I have discounts that you can get there which if you can't remember it's whatthepad.com you can shoot an email to whatthepatpodcast at gmail.com. You can get a hold of me on Instagram, Facebook. In fact, I'm going to give out five stickers. So if you contact me, just shoot me your address. I'll drop a sticker in the mail to you. First five people through either Facebook, Instagram, email, whatnot. I'll get five people together and shoot you out some What The Pat stickers. These are, these are some high-quality stickers from Sticker Mule. Yeah, it's the monkey with the crown on the banana. Says what, the pat? Beta. I'll send it to you. Just hit me up. First five. Taking caller ten right now. Phone lines are open. Oh, wait. (laughs) I don't have any phone lines open. Nope. Just going to have to use social media, people. Sorry. Or an email. Well, last uh, episode I read you a letter from my great-grandfather, Captain Stahl. Uh, This is a continuation of that. Here's another letter, and it's uh, dated March 19th, 1943. This one's one's pretty cool. So uh, here you go. Check it out. 
American Mail Line, S.S. Samuel Parker, Tripoli, March 21st, 1943. On the evening of March 19th, we had an air attack at 6.30 without any warning. Saboteurs, it is claimed, had cut the communications between the listening stations and the warning stations so that no alarm could be given. We are the duty ship here at present. We have to sound the alarm, signal for the harbor when we see the flashing warning from the tower. Our first inclination of the attack was roar of the planes as they swept in over the breakwater. Very low they were. Only a dozen guns opened on the raiders in the first phase of the attack. It had been raining heavily for half an hour, so the enemy must have been guided by a radio beam from saboteurs here. Visibility a half mile. Their timing was so perfect that it could not have been a coincidence with the weather. About a dozen planes were seen. In the first phase, one bomber crashed alongside a small ship here. Another, or part of another, crashed on top of the ship at the next mooring to us. These came in so low they were probably caught in their own bomb blast, or the blast of bombs from planes ahead of them. The concussions from bombs were quite heavy. They were so close to our ship. Gasoline and oil ignites quickly, so two ships that got direct hits soon became a mass of flames. The flaming bomber that crashed soon sank. The two ships in flames lit up this small harbor, making us all targets. Drums and cans of gas and ammunition on the blazing ship near us began to explode like rockets and Roman candles. Gasoline cans came down like flaming meteors. Fortunately, the wind was across the harbor. Ships are tied up here in pairs, the stern lines to the same buoy, their anchors down separately, so that each pair forms a V at an angle of about 75 degrees. Few moorings in a small harbor, two-thirds of it silted up so ships cannot spread out singly. At the time this letter was written, it was apparently top secret, or didn't want to name some of the ships in the harbor, so... The blank ship tied to the same buoy as the blazing ship, out her moorings and steamed ahead a thousand feet until she stuck fast. Quick work. Through our binoculars, we saw some men leap over the stern of the blazing ship on which the bomber had crashed and which the blank had just left. Some of our crew took our motorboat, went over, and picked up the six men in the water. They got back safely. We kept our hoses ready to turn on flying bomb fragments that occasionally fall on our decks. Some fireworks. Now here's an unbelievable yarn. A few minutes after this rescue party returned, one of our forward gun crew reported a fish or something swimming slowly along our starboard side, heading aft. Looking over the side from our bridge, I saw the thing beam, going about four knots, like a big fish. Its actions coming to the surface for a few seconds, then diving and coming to the surface again in erratic turnings and circles, resembled exactly a half-stunned fish. It's a big fish, stunned by the bombs, I said to my men, but watch it closely. Within the V angle formed by us with our companionship, the big fish circled lazily, mostly making left-hand turns. Once it grazed our side, one of the other ship's sides in crazy actions. As no enemy planes had been heard for some time, I ordered a signal searchlight turned down on the beast as it completed a small turn and angled toward us. Then, close alongside, I saw that it was a torpedo. Our guns would not depress below horizon level. We had no machine guns, no rifles. The description is the most potent argument for all our ships to be equipped with at least one machine gun. We yelled, Torpedo! to our companion ship. They then saw the beast and put their spotlight on it. It headed directly for them, lazy, deliberate, inexorable as a nightmare, and dived a foot from their side amidship. It reappeared near the bow. Their machine gun glazed, but the bullets glanced off. The beast headed directly for us in a wide turn. A patrol boat had come up to see what the searchlights were for. Through the megaphone, I yelled, Torpedo, look out! 
They put on their searchlight, saw it, and backed hastily out of its track. They fired several shots at it from their machine gun, without effect. Headless of bullets, it seemed immune to destruction. A British tank officer aboard us had gotten his rifle out, and the only rifle on board. The beast came on and on, deliberately, perfectly certain of its mission of death, apparently, and in no hurry to complete it. It was heading directly for number three hatch, purposefully now, as if it tired of playing cat and mouse. It hadn't dived for about a minute. I was leaning over the starboard wing of the bridge with my flashlight on the torpedo. On it came, head on and dived suddenly, six inches from our side. We all swear it back bumped the sides in that moment of deathly stillness in which we were all held our breath. It is impossible to believe that this occurred to both ships in succession. Were we immune? The damn torpedo seemed harmless, an unloaded dummy. It came up out in the middle between the ships. The patrol boat fired another burst at it. In the lull, our guest lieutenant fired four shots in quick succession. A moment of silence and he fired one more shot. With a roar, the beast exploded, throwing up a mast-high column of water. All over the harbor, a roar echoed back. Another of the beasts had found its mark in the side of one of our ships. Flashlights and searchlights darted from every ship onto the water about them. All realized what it meant. Fifteen minutes later, a machine gun chattered and the sound was droned by another great roar and a thousand feet away. That was three accounted for. Three explosions were firecrackers to what we had later. Burning ships blocked the harbor entrance. Blazing oil spread quite a distance from them. Small bombs and ammunition continued to explode from the ship nearest us. One at a time, two, three, and a string in quick succession, the intervals being filled by the firecracker sound of small ammunition. We wondered if she was loaded with our type of cargo, too. We were glad the wind was across the harbor. By this time, the blazing ships had settled into the mud, 24 feet in depth. The all-clear signal had gone during the torpedo incident, but there was no all-clear for half a dozen ships that ringed the blazing vessels, particularly the one nearest us. Her stern stuck up, still clear of flame, the rest of her sagged down. Her sides were red hot, but two small lighters moored on the side nearest us were not blazing as yet. Midnight crept toward us. The hour was ushered in by an explosion so terrific it would put a volcano to shame. Every one of us was knocked flat. One of the gunners was blown overboard. He floated alongside in his lifeboat until picked up by a launch on patrol duty in our lake. A vast wall of water swept over us over the flying bridge, a wall of water and mud and flying steel. Visibility was nil. A moment later, it began to rain. Steel, followed by gravel and coal, followed by mud and sand. As though it were a long way off, a dim fire began to glow through the dense rain from the wreck. It grew brighter momentarily as the air cleared. Then the fire began to spread as it seized on gasoline and oil released by the blast. It spread and leapt across the water. How the crew escaped death is a dozen miracles. No one was actually hurt by the blast. The second mate was blue bruises on thigh and foot, where a 150-pound chunk of steel grazed him as it fell. The third mate laughingly said, I'll swear I curled myself into a ball a foot in diameter. He's six foot three and a half inches tall. Written by Captain Stull, March 19, 1943, Tripoli. Read by Patrick Danforth. Ah, nothing like getting a little history tossed in. Sorry, no tech to talk about this week. Maybe I'll find something to talk about next week. Just keep your feet out of the water, people. 
Make sure your cuts are taken care of before you get in there. Ah. What are some things that movies have done to you that freaked you out? I'm curious to know. As always, I appreciate you coming along for the ride and enjoying the journey. Again, hit me up. Let me know how things are going with you and if there is anything I can talk about. Maybe you got a show you want me to talk about that you're having mixed emotions about. I don't know. I know. This is just things I'm pulling out of the air. Right out of thin air. But I do appreciate you coming along. Till next week, have a good one. Enjoy whatever you're doing. Always make it fun. If it's not fun, change it up. Common sense, right? <laughs> anyway, kicking the boots off. It's time to kick it back.